By the way, the Leafs won last night 3-1 to one over the Habs. It's a good start in this preseason time. Now, I do not bleed blue the way that Lucas bleeds green, but I am, I'll admit it, a Maple Leafs fan. But I'll admit that the intensity of my fanness is not what it once was. Uh, don't ask me who's playing and who scored the latest goal until it's the playoffs. Yeah, I'm one of those. And at least the Leafs, as of the last couple of years, have been making it into the playoffs, so I get to watch some hockey every year. You see, I was on the wrong side of history when the Leafs last won the Stanley Cup way, way back, do I admit it, in 1967. My family had just moved from Montreal to Toronto, and I foolishly held on to being a Habs fan. And to my astonishment that year, the Leafs won the Cup. And since I'd now moved to Toronto, I, I just thought it would make sense to move my allegiance to Toronto, and, and I made a lifelong commitment to do that till death do us part. And since then, it's not been that difficult. I've, I've always lived in cities where uh, the most cheered for hockey team is the Leafs, even here in Fort McMurray. Heck, just a few houses down from me is a garage that's been decked out as a shrine to the Leafs. It is a sight to behold, worth a pilgrimage. Anyways, and like millions of others of Leafs fans, I get amped up every year believing that maybe, maybe this is the year. I've become a bit of an eternal optimist, uh, convinced it that this is the year, and I know I'm not the only one in this room. And I am convinced that in the sovereignty of God, the good guys will eventually win the cup, and of course, the Leafs are the good guys. And, and did you know that Toronto was once called Toronto the good? I mean, imagine that. Some of you are convinced that my optimism is delusional. That for the approaching last five decades, the Leafs have always choked at some point well before the Cup. Well, I might not always know how and when the Leafs season will come to an end, but as a follower of Jesus, I do know something else that some find delusional in our world, but I know is solid truth. I know how the game of life will come to an end. And while the world sometimes feels as dark as season after season of watching the Leafs, yeah, it can be a really dark world when you're a Leafs fan, but, the follower, but as a follower of Jesus, uh, you know, who know, as a follower of Jesus, we just, we know. We know who wins the ultimate game, and that means there's always light in the midst of darkness. Maybe not for the Leafs, but for this world, absolutely. And for those of us who follow Jesus, I mean, no matter how dark the world gets, no matter how much morality continues to erode, no matter how violent our city or world gets, no matter what happens to the economy, and no matter what politician or speaker of the house makes an inconceivable error in judgment, friends, Jesus is coming back to see all wrongs made right. This, we believe, is absolute truth. All this means that all the despair and panic over what's happening all around us these days is not the right way to respond. We are not a despair and panic people. Hey, I, I understand it's a sad day when those who live godless lifestyles are lifted up as role models. It's a sad day when what Christians believe are, are bought by many in our culture or when Christian values are, are even criminalized. And it's an incredibly sad moment in our city with three murders and a, a death by police shooting that have just happened in a period of a little over a week. But that is not the end of the story. 
These are simply the enemy's short-term and temporary victories on the way to his great and final defeat because he is going down. And that's the message of Daniel uh, uh, as we get into the second chapter of Daniel as Daniel interprets a prophetic dream that God gave to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And as I unpack this message, I should acknowledge a couple of people. One is J.D. Greer, a preacher who I used a bit from, and, and a, a Wendy Wilder, an amazing scholar and preacher. And I did something very geeky this summer. I mean, pastors use commentaries and just borrow from them here and there, just read them. No, I read the commentary this summer from start to finish. Amazing stuff. And I'm sure none of you would be as excited as I am, but anyways. You'll remember from the last two weeks that Daniel's homeland and his city, Jerusalem, were ransacked by the Babylonians. And he, along with the elite and the strong of Israel, they were taken captive and pressed into serving the Babylonian king. And what Daniel did was to choose to interpret these awful circumstances through the eyes of faith, trusting in the promises of God, rather than being overwhelmed by the reality of Nebuchadnezzar's success. Daniel knew that God had warned the nation of Israel that, that they would be handed over to a foreign power if they failed to obey his commands. So when Nebuchadnezzar overran Israel, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, took Daniel and his friends off to Babylon, Daniel accepted it as God's will. That doesn't mean he found it pleasant and enjoyed it. Heck no. He had sleepless nights and an intense sense of sadness came over him about what happened. But Daniel's trust in God's ultimate goodness and power was stronger and deeper than the sorrow and confusion that he experienced. He might not understand everything that was happening. Uh, he saw a lot of bloodshed. People he knew and loved lost their lives. But he personally knew the God who was in control of who is in control. And he knew that God would someday turn this mess all around. This idea... That God is in control of who is in control, even when the world around us is spiraling into darkness, is a theme that we saw in Daniel chapter 1 the last two weeks, and it's a theme that continues in the second chapter of Daniel. Follow along on the screen or with your Bibles as we read about Nebuchadnezzar, working up one cold sweat about some disturbing dreams he's been getting. We'll start at the beginning of Daniel chapter 2, in the second year of his reign. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had this team of professionals with a, a skill set that ranged from dream interpretation to the occultic arts to the more exotic reading of uh, animal livers and entrails. And there was this book that they used in, for interpretation that told them what each element of a dream would mean. A cow meant this, a bird meant that. I, I mean, appearing before the court with nothing on but your underwear, they would find an interpretation for that. It would be in there somewhere, somehow. But Nebuchadnezzar was a skeptic. He, he was beginning to suspect that these guys who got big salaries from him were giving him nothing but a bunch of malarkey. 
Listen to how Nebuchadnezzar responds to these guys. This is what I have firmly decided if you do not tell me what my dream was. And so he says, you got to interpret the dream first. And, or you got to tell me what the dream is first and then interpret it. And if you don't do that, well, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and then interpret it. Yowzers, right? Things are getting a little hot, a little intense. And all of these occult magicians stall a bit. And, and Neb, do you mind if I call him Neb uh, um, every now and then? Because Nebuchadnezzar is such a long, laborious name to say. So, so Neb uh, accused them of trying to gain time. It was now or die. It's quite clear. The Neb, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, does, he, he didn't trust these guys. And, and he wanted them to prove themselves by telling him what his dream was before they interpreted. Pretty smart guy, this Nebuchadnezzar. So trouble is brewing quickly. Blood might just start to flow. And the problem is Daniel and, and his friends also have this title of wise men. So that means they're going to get killed in this purge as well. I mean, no fault of theirs, but they too are threatened with death. So Daniel approaches the king, asks for time to figure out the dream, and the king gives him the time. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in there, using their Hebrew names. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel, look what he does. He praises the God of heaven and said, Praise be the name to our God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And so Daniel goes back to the king. And the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Let's just stop for a moment and consider that phrase, but there is a God in heaven. I mean, that's really the question behind all this, isn't it? Is there a God in heaven and, and has he said something to us here on earth? Is there a God in heaven and is his power available to us? You see, sometimes like Nebuchadnezzar, you, you get to the point where all human strategies fail. And I just want you to know loud and clear, friends, there is a God in heaven. Yes, there is a God in heaven. Wouldn't that change how you saw your problem? You, you've tried to fix what is broken and it's all, you know, you've tried to make that relationship work and it's just all failed and you feel like there's no hope. Friends, I've got good news. There is a God in heaven and his power starts where yours ends. You, you've tried to make that kid turn out right. You, you've told him everything you know how, 
you know, how to tell them and everything you know, how to make them choose what's right. There's, there's nothing left for you to do. Uh, but friends, there is a God in heaven. You've tried to overcome uh, that addiction. You've tried to find the missing piece and you've failed so many times. You've started to think, oh man, there's no point. And, and that's a huge but. But there is a God in heaven. The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner can explain to the king the mystery is asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You're disappointed in politics, dismayed by our leaders. Liberals disappoint, conservatives disappoint, all party leaders disappoint. Newsflash, if any of you were put in power, you'd disappoint too. But yes, there is a God in heaven. And speaking of disappointments, let's talk about you. For some of you, no one has disappointed you more than you. No one has lied to you, let you down, or broken promises to you more than you. And you have no confidence to go forward and create a better future. But there is a God in heaven. Do you believe that? Wouldn't that change everything? There is a God in heaven. And Daniel continues, God told me what your magicians could not, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. King Nebuchadnezzar, he saw this giant statue, and his head was made of gold, and chest and arms were silver, and the belly was bronze, and the legs were iron, and the ten toes of the feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And while you were admiring this statue, a, a rock came out of heaven and shattered the statue into pieces. And Nebuchadnezzar said, yeah. That was it. That's it. And then Daniel gives him this interpretation. Now this is an important piece of prophecy that speaks to the core message God has for living in Babylon. So this is really meant for us today, not just back then. Uh, because friends, we also live in Babylon. So Daniel begins to uh, describe and determine the dream to King Nebuchadnezzar. Your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And each part of the statue is made of a different substance. The head is made of gold. Daniel says this represents the Babylonian Empire which lasted from, from about 626 BC to about 539 BC. And, and Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are that head of gold. And depending on what you remembered from history class, Babylon was the first world superpower. It was one fierce empire. It was decorated all over with gold. I mean, gold was big in Babylon. The, the king's throne was made of all gold. After that, we have the chest and arms made of silver, not, not quite as valuable as gold. And to uh, interpret the meaning of this, I'm just going to go with uh, where most scholars go. Most believe that this represents the Medo-Persian Empire, which conquered Babylon. We see this happening in Daniel chapter 5. Next, we have belly and thighs made of bronze. Most scholars believe this represents Greece, the superpower that conquered the Medo-Persian Empire around 220 BC, led by Alexander the Great. And by the way, this is prophetically really interesting. It is no accident that this empire is bronze. Alexander's army pioneered the use of bronze in weaponry. Greek soldiers wore bronze helmets. Their chariots were made of bronze. Their shields and swords were also made of bronze. Fascinating stuff right here. Then we have legs of iron. 
which likely represents the Roman Empire. That kingdom that was conquered by Greece uh, in 63 BC, why iron? Iron was considered the strongest of all metals. This is a, a prophetic reference to Rome being the strongest of all these empires. It lasted for 500 years. Babylon was only 70 years. The Medo-Persian as well as Greek empires were maybe 200 years. Rome was 500 years, uh, 1,500 years if you include the eastern part of, of uh, the Roman Empire. Just interesting stuff. Finally, we have feet made of a mixture of iron and clay. The Roman Empire would eventually be shattered into different kingdoms and nations. The book of Revelation uses this image, so this image covers the whole period from the time of the fall of Rome until Christ returns. Now I know, some of you want to geek out on which nation is which as you try to figure out end times events. You can try that, but that's not really what this is all about. There's a lot of ambiguity in this vision, and really if God had wanted us to know more specifics, he would have given them to us, so go there if you want, but it's, it's just not the point. You see, the most important part of the dream is, is not the statue itself, and trying to figure out what the statue means. The most important part is what happens to the statue. Let's read on in Daniel chapter two. While you were watching, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff, a chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them all away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then we read, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. forever. So the rock, friends, the rock is the kingdom of God. And when Jesus showed up on planet earth, he, he taught that this rock coming from heaven was a picture of himself. Jesus, quoting the psalm, said of himself, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the rock. If possible, it's possible that this is also a reference to the virgin birth of Jesus. As this rock in Daniel's vision was not made of human hands, so Jesus was born of a virgin. And something else to see. The rock is the least valuable substance in the dream. It tells us that Jesus would not come with all of the bling and shine of the world. He was born poor. He never owned a home. He never raised an army. He, he had no head of gold. Yet he came with the death-defying power of God. And in this dream, you will see that the rock started small, but eventually grew into a gigantic mountain that filled the whole earth. Friends, we read in Matthew 13, Jesus explaining that his kingdom would start small like a seed, but would eventually multiply where it covered every part of the earth. Friends, we live in the middle of this kingdom-bashing prophecy right now. You see, the kingdom of God broke into world history with the coming of Jesus, the rock. And with his resurrection, he shattered the power of the evil one as well as any political authority that stands in the way of the rule of God. The kingdom of God is already here, but it is not yet fully realized. Here, but not yet. 
Right now, you and I live in what feels like a painfully slow process of God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. It might feel slow, but the time is coming when Jesus will return and set things right. Theologians describe God's kingdom, let me say it again, as here but not yet. This is what the prophecy in in Daniel 2 means. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That kingdom is now but not yet. That kingdom will fully come when Jesus returns. Sorry if I've lost a few of you. I love this theology stuff. It it is really relevant, but in a short message, I can't do it justice. Just remember this. God is in control of who is in control. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but only God's kingdom is eternal. And ultimately, the rock is going to crush all that is opposed to God. The message of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that God is the one true God. That world rulers and their empires are in God's hands. That God directs the course of human history. Do you believe that? This means getting all uptight and anxious about crime in Fort McMurray, war in Ukraine, rising interest rates, um, new pandemics, or the moral decline of our country and the West as a whole should not undo us, should not tear us apart. It means that fear about the threats of climate change or intensifying natural disasters and wildfires need not leave us in despair. We are not a fear and despair people. I get it. Smoke at the end of September into October is a bit depressing. But friends, our God is in control. He alone is sovereign. He alone is our hope. And and no political leader or system will thwart God's plans. And our job, friends, our job, serving the God who's in control of who is in control, our job is to work to see God's kingdom values become more and more a reality in our world now as they are in heaven. We are not to sit back and be complacent. We know how the game ends. We know who wins. But our job is to keep kicking the ball forward and in the process we help help more and more people get a taste of that future kingdom now. We help more and more people experience the love and healing and freedom that Jesus brings for them now. And that's one of the reasons why we ask you to get on a team to be part of moving God's work forward. Because friends, we are fighting on the winning side As we work every day, we are kicking the ball forward and we we know that we're in the winning cause, so keep kicking that ball. Okay, let's learn from Daniel something else that we saw last week. When Daniel got news that he could lose his life because he was part of a group called the Wise Men that Nebuchadnezzar was going to kill, uh, that meant that they too would be killed. So what did Daniel do? He responded with prayer and fasting, not despair and mudslinging. He responded to the order of a crazed king with wisdom and tact. It's right there in the text. Um, I was really grabbed by this observation as I was reading Daniel 2. When the enchanters and the magicians and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar called on, um, when they asked Nebuchadnezzar for more time, The king just scoffed at them. You bunch of no good charlatans. And he just told them they'd all die if they didn't deliver immediately. 
But when Daniel asked for more time, Daniel 2, verse 16, take a look, same request, he got it. Why did the king give Daniel more time and not the others? Because of his wisdom and tact. Because of his integrity. The king knew that Daniel could be trusted. And you need to see this. Daniel worked a good relationship with the king, however bad he was. And so the king gave him the time he needed. Relationship matters, even with bad bosses. I regularly do coffee with a, a number of you, as well as breakfast with a group of guys every weekend. And I hear a lot about work and bosses. Daniel would say this to us. Whether we serve a lesser ruler than Nebuchadnezzar who treats us well, and some of you have good bosses, or one who treats us not so good, some of us have lousy bosses, the truth is God is the one in charge either way. He raises up bosses and takes them down. We often have little control about our work environment, but, but like Daniel, we make choices every day about the way we will serve God's appointed authorities. What do your performance reviews say? Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of the martyred missionary Jim Elliot, says this. This job was given to me to do. Therefore, it is a gift. Therefore, it is a privilege. Therefore, it is an offering I make to God. Therefore, it is to be done gladly as if it were done for him. Here, not elsewhere, I may learn God's way. In this job, not in some other, God looks for faithfulness. So do you work for your boss like Daniel did Nebuchadnezzar? That, that's a key takeaway from this chapter. Friends, are you getting a sense of who this Daniel is? How he lives and what we can learn from him? The message of Daniel chapter 2 is this. Number one, there is a God in heaven. Number two, he can do anything. Number three, he is in control of who is in control. And fourthly, he is the rock coming again to establish his kingdom fully and make all things right. The rock will bust through all of the junk and the mess of this world and establish his kingdom forever on earth. The apostle John calls this the new heaven and the new earth. Do you know the rock? Do you know the rock personally? Will you build your life on Jesus, the rock of our salvation? Will you choose a life of meaning and purpose built upon the rock in good times and bad? Will you live as a gracious difference maker in this world because your feet are securely planted on the rock? Once again, will you dare to be a Daniel? Truth be told, I don't know if the Leafs will win the cup again in my lifetime or your lifetime. But I do know who holds the future. And I place my future securely in his hands. I place every day in his hands. And as I do, it totally changes my experience of life every day, friends. Every single day. Would you join me for a time of prayer? I invite you to pray with me, a prayer where you just put your feet solidly on the rock. Let's pray. Jesus. In a world that sometimes confuses me, sometimes scares me, I thank you that you are in control. That you are in control of who is in control, even my boss. And I thank you that your kingdom will prevail and crush all opposition and that you will make things right in your time. And today, God, I commit to live my life in light of that truth that you 
are always with me, that you care for me, that you will eventually make all things right for me in this world. And so today, so today I give you my life. Come into my life, fill me with your spirit, empower me to live with love and courage, help me to keep kicking the ball forward, seeing lives changed as I do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.